Hello, everyone. My name is Will. I am uh, one of the pastors here, and uh, I have the privilege of giving you God's Word here today. And if you're visiting with us for the first time, just want to say thank you for worshiping with us. It's a, a pleasure to be worshiping with you. We are continuing along in a series in our study in the book of Nehemiah, which we called uh, entitled Rebuild and Restore, because we, had to, we felt the desire to capture this idea of God's people coming back together and finding restoration and rebuilding our lives in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so today, I'll be reading from chapter 3 of Nehemiah, but because of the length of the chapter, I'm just going to read the first two verses and then the ending verses of chapter 3. So Nehemiah 3, verses 1 to 2, and then towards the end of the chapter, verses 28 to 32. So let me read this for us. Nehemiah chapter 3, starting with verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built, and next to them, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. And then verse 28, towards the end of the chapter, Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malkijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. In between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. And this is God's word for us today. By the way, I, I practice reading this scripture reading because of the difficulty of the names, but it's still, it's still quite difficult. But what we have, friends, here in chapter 3 is really a picture of, of the church. And it's a picture of what life in the church should look like, but it's given to us in Old Testament form. And we have here a description or a catalog, and it reads very repetitious, repetitiously because it's sort of a, a journal or an accounting of all the people and their job responsibilities in this one vision to rebuilding the temple walls. And if you think about this, we have the beginning of this project and how Nehemiah is orchestrating a project on a massive level. And it's a massive undertaking requiring the engagement of the entire community. It was a project that was so big that it required a level of organizational leadership and involved a level of organizational complexity that is arguably unprecedented in the entire Bible. And one of the questions you may be wondering if you think about the church is how did everyone get on board with this? What did Nehemiah do? How did the Holy Spirit work so that each one of them felt compelled to use their gift and their service and their time in order to build this temple wall? Because if you think about it practically, they had to leave their jobs, they had to sacrifice their time, they had to sacrifice economics, they had to do all of this for the one vision in order to rebuild this temple so they could dwell in the presence of God. How did they do this? Now, if you're in any form of leadership, you're wondering, how can I inspire people to be moving along towards a God-given vision with a God-given goal and a God-given method to reach that God-given goal? And you're thinking, how can you do this? Well, I think the passage gives us at least a glimpse into what happened in the hearts of the people. So I want to look at this passage from the perspective of the people, the church, 
given to us in Old Testament form. And there are three things, three aspects of the people that we can look at and recognize and be able to contemplate and to apply for ourselves. First, we'll look at the heart of a servant, the heart of these people, to be able to build this small sacrifice. Secondly, we'll consider their unity and their harmony, how they were together in this wonderful harmony of achieving God's goal. And then thirdly, we'll look at their vision and their goal. So three things that we'll look at here, their heart, their unity, and then their goal. So let's consider this. First, if you read verse 1 with me, we get a glimpse into the heart of this community. So let's read verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. They set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. Now, the reason this gives us a glimpse and a starting point for the heart of the people was uh, several things. One, the sheep gate was called the sheep gate because that's where they brought the sheep through. It was a gate literally where the high priest would bring the sheep in. They carried it over to the temple and used it for their sacrificial worship services. The sheep gate, if you know the temple geography, was right near the entrance and close to the temple itself. That's why it makes sense. It's the sheep gate near the temple. The priests bring the sheep in, and it's the priests that are working on this one gate itself. Now, what does this tell us about the heart of the people of God? One thing it tells us is this. They had a heart of servant leadership because the high priest was in some level an important role. It was... A, in some level in the religious system of the Jewish Old Testament religion, it was a very esteemed and holy role. It was the guy who would lead the worship services. He was the senior pastor of the temple. And for him, it, go, it keys off that the first person who rose up and wanted to build and get his hands dirty was the high priest, who knew nothing about building construction, was somebody who used his voice and his tongue and lips to proclaim the word of God, but yet he showed his heart of servanthood because he wanted to get down and dirty and he led by example to build a temple. Somebody who was high up the religious social caste, the heart of a servant leader. He led by example. And what did he do there? Well, he consecrated it and he consecrated the doors and all the way to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel. Now, when you consecrate something, you're basically saying, I'm going to dedicate this to God so that it tells us what is the heart of the people well, they had a heart of a servant, but they had a heart that wanted to, to honor God. It was the thrust, the first stepping stone, the first move. Priests didn't do this kind of work. It wasn't their gift, but it was their service. They made it holy so that the heart and the thrust of this project was about God. So you know what the heart of the people were? Simply put, according to one commentator, put God first. Put God first in your heart servantship. Now, what's interesting is that you could contrast the heart of verse 1 with the heart of the Tekoites in verse 5, the nobles to be exact, because in verse 5 it says the nobles uh, would not put their shoulders to work. Literally, verse 5 suggests that they were very prideful. In fact, in this whole catalog of verses 1 to 32, there's only one negative aspect in this entire catalog, and that's in the latter part of verse 5. It says... The Tekoites were willing to do this. In fact, the regular citizens of the Tekoas, they actually built two gates. But the nobles, those who were literally that were exalted ones, 
those who were sort of the aristocratic culture of that particular tribe, so to speak, wouldn't put their shoulder down to work. They were too prideful. It was beneath them. That word there, put their shoulders to work, is an agricultural metaphor. It's used in that more well-known Christian phrase to say that they were a stiff-necked ox, a stiff-necked people. And the Bible understands that and uses that for all kinds of stubborn and prideful people. They're stiff-necked. And what does that mean? It means that the ox were stiff-necked so they wouldn't be yoked in. They wouldn't listen. They wouldn't help out. They wouldn't do what they're designed to do. And when you apply that to people, they were also stiff-necked. Stiff-necked. They were prideful. They wouldn't do what they're called to do. They were too prideful. They were too snobby. They were too up there. And it shows us in verse 5 that the only people who didn't get down and dirty were the Tekoites and their nobles, the nobles of the Tekoites. And that shows us in stark contrast that the heart of the people always is about a greater vision of service, to put God first. Now, before you're too harsh on the nobles here, even though we should be harsh, I think we, before, we're so prideful and say, oh, I wouldn't be like that. You know, that's, I wouldn't be, I, if everyone's on board, I'm going to roll up my sleeves, I'm going to get down and dirty. But before you're so quick to assume that, you can relate to these nobles. Because what probably happened was that these guys had some influence and there was some power, and then all of a sudden, Nehemiah comes in with Israelites and all this armory and all these resources, and he begins to take charge, and he leads the rebuilding of the temple. So then essentially, what do you have? You have these nobles who had influence and power, and now they're displaced with another group. And if you were in that position, that you were the mover and the shaker, you had influence, people came to you, and all of a sudden, you felt like you were displaced and replaced with a higher power, a new right-hand man, someone else who's in charge, well, think about it. How would you feel about that? Well, I think you may feel a little resentful. I think you'd have a hard struggle with this. To feel replaced never really feels good. You think you're close to someone, and they, you think you're their confidant, and they turn to you, and they give you advice, and you give them advice, and all of a sudden, you feel like maybe you're replaced, and all of a sudden, you just feel resentful and envious, and it's hard to deal with this. So I feel that probably is a little bit of the context of the nobles, that they were those people. So they're like, I'm not going to listen to Nehemiah. I used to be in charge. I'm not going to follow what he's going to do. So they didn't put their shoulder to work. They were too prideful. They were too, too quote-unquote, noble for the task before them. But that's the only negative aspect of this entire chapter with respect to building the wall. The one negative perspective on the heart posture of people who God will never use because God doesn't use the prideful, he opposes the proud, and uses the humble. In fact, if you're trying to wonder, what about other rulers? The word ruler is scattered throughout about nine or ten times in verses 9 to 19. And if you ever read those verses, you'll see that over and over again, it says the ruler repaired their part, the ruler repaired their part, the ruler repaired their part. And it shows us that it's just the Tekoites and their nobles that were too prideful and their necks were too stiff in order to do their part. But the Holy Spirit and the movement of God move the heart of the people to be a servant leader, to be humble, and to do their part, even if they are considered a ruler or a noble. That's the heart of the people. Derek Thomas, a, a scholar and a pastor, has said, really, if you look at what Nehemiah is trying to show us, it gives us a job description of what a Christian is. And this is what he says, as the job description for every believer, wanted, Gifted volunteers for difficult service in the local church. Motivation should be a willingness to serve the Lord no matter what the cost or difficulty of the task. 
Volunteers should be filled with a desire to think of others as better than themselves. Service will sometimes prompt a desire to give up, but volunteers must be willing to face long hours and little to no recognition except by God. Grumblers and whiners need not apply. Now, if you see this, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you should be transformed and compelled and moved to apply, to engage. In fact, once you became a believer and a member of this church, you have automatically been drafted into the vision and mission of New Life Press for the sake of God's name and discipling the nations. But if we're honest with ourselves, probably most of us, and maybe starting with myself in the beginning, fall into the latter part of that job description. Grumblers and whiners need not apply. And maybe that expresses our heart more so than the rest of the job description. But that's why you praise God for the gospel, that we can have forgiveness for our grumbling and complaining and self-concentration, self-centeredness, self-indulgence, and that we could be moved to have a heart of a servant in humility, to roll up our sleeves and to move towards this vision that God may have given us in the 21st century in Orange County at Fullerton at New Life Presbyterian. But that's the heart of a servant. That's the heart of the people. Let's move on to look at the second point. What else about this community allowed them to undertake one of the massive, most complex, and organizationally needy jobs and projects in the history of the church, well, as also this unity and this harmony that they had in the Old Testament representation of the church, their unity. Now, one commentator said it this way, this chapter underscores an important theme in Ezra and Nehemiah, and that theme is that the people of God as a whole the people of God as a whole, not just the leaders, the people of God as a whole are vital for accomplishing God's redemptive purpose. Have you ever heard of a guy by the name of Marshall McLuhan? He came up with this idea and phrase that said, the medium is the message. The medium is the message, which basically means and says something that, that when you say something, the way you say something communicates a message in of itself. So a text message is less personal than a phone call. And a phone call is less personal than a conversation face-to-face. -face. So you communicate something by the way you communicate. You say something, and the way you say something says something. And so for Nehemiah to tell us that people rose up and built, and he included all these names and all these places by tell, is telling us something because the medium communicates something. And what is this medium showing us in this very regimented, a uh, repetitious, rhythmic approach to showing us a catalog of names. The medium communicates the message, and what is it communicating? That this massive undertaking required the harmony and the unity of God's people. The unity, humility, the togetherness details how the people came together to build this wall. The harmony of it. Now, it's a beautiful passage. You know, if you read this passage in detail, there are repetitious phrases that are scattered throughout. And one of the beautiful, harmonious aspects of the people of God is this phrase, next to him. So they built the walls, the doors, they had the bolts, next to him, next to him, after him, after him, opposing him, opposite of him. So over and over again, you see that there is a repetitious approach to how the building goes. In fact, if you care about a little bit of building construction, the description of the building of the temple that Nehemiah gives goes counterclockwise. It begins at the sheep gate, and if you follow it, it's going to the next gate, and the next gate, and the next gate. And it loops 360 degrees around until it comes back up to the merchants who are right next to the sheep gate. 
It is showing us in this rhythmic, unified, harmonious perspective of the people of God, and then after him, and then next to him, and after him, and next to him, showing us that there's a harmony. Well, let me show you this in verses 3 to 5. I do my best to read this with the eloquence that the passage requires, but it says, The sons of Hasana built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimith, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. So next to them, and next to them, and next to them is this harmonious picture. It's almost as if, friends, that every person is a musical note that is strung together so that as they work on this building, the musical notes of the people of God declare the harmony and the glory of God. Do you listen to classical music? I don't know much about it, but I once heard that of all the composers, Beethoven is the most genius, even better than Mozart. I don't know if that's true, so maybe you could explain it to me, but the way I've heard it was that Beethoven is actually the best. And the reason, because as one person explained it, he said for Beethoven, every note that followed the preceding note was always the perfect note and strung together in perfect harmony. And I think that's exactly what we have with these people. Every person that followed the previous person was the perfect person working together after him and next to him and after him. The unity and the harmony of the church. Now, it shows us actually very subtly that the people of God is very countercultural in his harmony. Because if you read verse 12, there's something very countercultural about the people of God. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halawesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. They include the women in this project. And if you recognize this, first of all, they don't like to write about women in the, in the Bible itself, nor actually back in that patriarchal society did daughters or women engage in construction work. That was highly unusual. But it's showing that in some level, the vision of God implying the gospel of Jesus levels the playing field so that by virtue of our neediness of the grace of Jesus and made in the image of God, we are all on the same playing field with equal dignity equal glory, equal honor, equal part in the vision and mission of God that he has given us for the church of Jesus Christ. Not just men, but also the women. And it's all kinds of people here, friends. There's 41 separate groups. There are priests, there's Levites, there's temple servants, there are goldsmiths, there are merchants, salesmen, officials, women, and even people outside the city. People who are neighboring cities even got on board with this vision. So you have a diverse group of people coming together in this unity. You have, all, you have both men and women. You have clergy and laymen. You have politicians and citizens. You have rulers and servants. There's a diversity of people, but this is the beautiful thing. The diversity of people were subsumed and used for the unity and purpose of the Church of Jesus Christ. Diversity of people was subsumed under the unity of purpose. Every member of ministry, every member involvement. James Boyce once said this, Unfortunately, many churches have it completely turned around. It is said that today the churches, more than anything else, resemble a football game played in a large stadium. There are 80,000 spectators in the stands who badly need some exercise, and there are 22 men on the field who badly need a rest. 
And we all know that if you've grown up in the church, there's always that phrase, that 80-20 rule, that 20% of the people are doing 100% or 80% of the work. But what this passage shows us in this unity and harmony is that it should be 100% of the people moving together for 100% of the work to pursue 100% of God's vision. And I think it's implied here, friends. It's, you know, it's interesting. Remember, the high priest in verse 1, the sheep gate, it goes all the way around. And then what does it end on in verse 32, right next to the high priest in the, ship, in the sheep gate? It ends on the goldsmiths and the merchants. It shows a harmony of all kinds of people. You have basically the mercantile, the goldsmiths, the jewelers, and then you have the religious people, but they're doing the same thing next to each other, showing the unity of purpose that subsumes the diversity of gifts and people because it's every member of ministry. Now, before we go on to our last point, I want to say this. If you remember, especially in chapters 1 through 7, the way that we had this in the Bible is that Nehemiah himself is probably just recollecting, and this reads like a memoir. It's like a diary. So after all these events happen, Nehemiah, at some point in his life, is probably just recounting and recollecting, and he's making notes. And that's why you have here in chapter 3 a passage that sort of reads like a record. It sort of reads like an account because he's reminiscing. He's recording it for whatever purpose, and then it gets inscripturated and put into our Bible. Now, if Nehemiah is writing this, remember one of the greatest moments in Israel's history, one of the greatest projects, perhaps unprecedented in its organizational complexity. He writes about this. Did you notice that there's a name that's missing from here? Well, one thing is that commentators will note is that this list of names are essentially forgettable people. They're not wonderful names. They're not people in which chapters of the Bible were written by any of these people. But even beside from that, did you notice that there's one name that's missing from this? Nehemiah, the guy who's in charge, the one who's writing about this. Isn't it interesting that the heart of our culture today is really about how can we get our name into the history books? But Nehemiah had the opportunity literally to write his name not just in the history books, but the book of eternity, but he leaves his name out in chapter 3 as he thinks about who actually served and sacrificed and was part of this grand vision to rebuild the temple. Instead of writing about himself in the history books, he writes the people who are essentially forgettable names because he wants to highlight the Lord of history, that God is actually the one moving in history itself. Nehemiah himself chronicles the people of God and doesn't even mention himself. You know why? Because good leaders, they take the blame and they give the credit. Bad leaders take the credit and they give the blame. Good leaders seldom talk and live through the first personal pronoun. Bad leaders, they only know the first personal pronoun. This is what I did. This is how I thought about it. This is what I wanted to do. But in fact, it shows us in this lesson of leadership that the gospel heart of people is to lead in such a way that you're nameless. Eugene Peterson captures it well when he said this. Referencing pastors, but I think we could apply it to Christians and leaders, but most pastoral work consists in pointing away from yourself to something other than you. You are at your pastoral best when you're not noticed. To keep this vocation healthy requires constant self-negation. Getting out of the way is certain blessed anonymity. Anonymity is inherent in pastoral work. For pastors, being noticed easily develops into wanting to be noticed. Many years earlier, a pastor friend told me that the pastoral ego 
has the reek of disease about it, the relentless smell of the self. And honestly, he's absolutely right. You know, it's interesting, as a leader, as a pastor, you always want to battle against the temptation of setting yourself up on the pedestal as if you are the center of attention, while all the while in doing so, you take away from the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ working through the hearts of his people. And I think even if you extend this, it's not just pastors. It could be elders or deacons or ministry directors or small group leaders or people who are just gifted and praise leaders, that all of us, because of our self-concentrated tendencies and our sin, always have the temptation and the reek of disease to smelling the relentless smell of the self. But Nehemiah says, that's not the way of God's way. If you want significance, you have to forget about yourself and be insignificant, because you remember from last week in Christianity, the way up is to go down. The pathway towards glorification comes through the pathway of crucifixion. The pathway of exaltation comes through the pathway of suffering. If you want to move up, the gospel out of humility and servanthood means that you become nameless and you move down so that the name of Jesus can be proclaimed and moved up. And that leads us to our third point. What is the goal or vision of all this? I think this is maybe something that our church and myself in particular have to think about, the goal of all this. Because when you read about what happens in this chapter, the sheep gate and the fish gate and the valley gate and even the dung gate, we have to realize that these gates are being built and the wall is being erected to protect something. And what it's trying to protect is essentially the temple of God. And if you didn't know this, the temple of God is basically in the Jewish mindset, the presence of God. They wanted to come in the presence of God, to worship God, to be forgiven by God, to find joy and satisfaction in God. It's all about the presence of God. So when you read chapter 3, it's not really about HGTV. It's not about building a new building. So if you ever try to take this passage and you try to use it for a building campaign, there's a way that maybe it'll fit, but then you're essentially missing the point. It's not talking about a building campaign as much as it's talking about the presence of God and building up people. So we have to follow the storyline from Nehemiah all the way into Revelation to see this guy, Jesus Christ, be the fulfillment of building this wall. That's basically what we're trying to understand, that God is rescuing a people for himself and that he might enjoy his presence with his people and the people might enjoy his presence. The temple represents the presence of God among his people. That's what they're made for. That's what salvation is all about. It's not any satisfaction in the world. It's a satisfaction that can only be had and knowing God and knowing him forever. So the goal of here is just to get people to God. You know, one of our core values here is Reformed in Theology, and we've been teaching this on every Friday. And if you learn these very important and richly biblical, rich biblical concepts, such as the attributes of God or justification, sanctification, the order of salutis, and eschatology, and all these things, one of the things you realize is that forgiveness of sins, adoption as his children, justification from your guilt, sanctification into holiness. All these complex and rich doctrines are not the end game, but they're really explanations to help us to understand how do we get into the presence of God. They're building this wall not to take a picture of it and post it on Redfin. They're building this wall because it's a way that they can get into the presence of God. The presence of God. That's what they're trying to do. 
because they can find their heart satisfaction in there. Revelations 21.2 shows us what is the presence of God. Revelations 21 verse 2 says, I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This new Jerusalem, this new city, which is the presence of God. And do you know that in Revelations, do you know what that new Jerusalem is like? It's not going to be an updated new edition. The presence of God in this new city is actually God's glory himself, the presence of God. The church of Jesus Christ rather constitutes a spirit-indwelt temple of God. And so what is our goal and what should be our goal? This is our application. In our service and sacrifice, in our strive for excellence as a church, the goal is ultimately not just for excellence sake, to be excellent, but to get people into the presence of God. And sometimes when you miss that point, you strive for excellence when you miss the main goal that the excellence in all our projects and all our ministries and all our presentations is not just to look good and have excellence, but it's really to bring us into the presence of God so that we could proclaim the excellencies of him who has saved us. And sometimes, especially perhaps in a culture like New Life Press, which we believe in being good stewards and striving for excellence, we can lose sight of the main goal to get into the presence of God because we strive for excellence and we develop a critical attitude, we develop a judgmental attitude because we sway ever so gently into working for Jesus than rather being with Jesus. We sway too much about talking excellently about Jesus rather than developing a relationship where we talk daily to Jesus. Because the goal of all of this is really to gather us together as the temple of God into God's presence. You know what presence is, don't you? I mean, on a human level, we say things, oh, that guy has presence. He walks in, he's charismatic, or he's, he's a lot of gravitas. And we know people who have a lot of presence. I remember in my first job right out of undergrad, I was working at a company in New Jersey called Prudential Asset Management, and one of my coworkers actually was moving to a different company, so we took him out to dinner in Jersey City, and he invited one of his friends who was a construction worker over in Argentina, and this guy comes over and he joins us, and this guy, he had presence. He was charismatic, he was good-looking, he was smooth, he was somebody who was fluent in Spanish, so he could talk to the waiters and talk to the workers at the restaurant that we were with, and he totally took the table and all everyone's attention captive because he had presence, and I could tell that everyone at my table wanted to talk to him. Now, that's more of a common grace, worldly perspective, but it's to show the point that we all want to be in the presence of greatness, to admire the presence of greatness. And that's the whole point and the goal of the temple is to be in the presence of greatness with our reigning king, Jesus Christ. Do you know how you and I get into the presence of God? Well, if you look at the geography of the temple, just Google it, look it in your Bible, you'll realize outside the temple walls, there's a little place outside the temple that's called Golgotha. We call it Calvary. Do you know why that place is so significant? Because that's the place where Jesus died, outside the temple. And that's insightful because it tells us that Jesus went to the people who are outside the temple. Jesus went to the unclean. Jesus went to the marginalized. Jesus went to the dirty people. Jesus went to the rejected. He died outside the temple to bring the presence of God, not to the insiders only, but also to the outsiders. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
not just those who are already in, but those people who thought they were at outside the temple. But Jesus, he dies outside the temple to bring presence and reconciliation and get them into a pathway in which they could be brought into the presence of greatness. That's why when Jesus came in, he ultimately died in Golgotha outside the temple walls. One way to think about it is given to us in John chapter 1, verse 14. And it says there, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that word right there that says dwelt among us, do you know what literally that word means? It means Jesus, he tabernacled among us, he tented among us. When Jesus came in his carnation, incarnation in chapter 1, he didn't just come on and take flesh, but John is theological and he says all the things that he knows about the tabernacle in the Old Testament finds his fulfillment in Jesus because when Jesus came into this world, he just didn't come into bodily flesh, he tabernacled with us. He gave us God's presence. It came down to us by grace. And the goal of all that Nehemiah is trying to do in chapter 3, and building this temple with this exquisite and organizationally complex project, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is the full bodily indwelling of God in his, all his attributes coming to us in flesh, received by us in faith. And do you know what you have to do in order to get what the Old Testament people desperately desire to have? Do you know what you have to do here in the New Testament? You don't have to build a wall. You don't got to paint the walls of this building. You just got to come to worship. And by faith, you have the fullness of God's presence by the Spirit of Jesus Christ in you. You have here today, in the Word of God, in the preaching of His Word, and later in the sacrament, you have in a fuller, more climactic way than anything that the Old Testament people and believers and the saints in Nehemiah 3 could ever begin to imagine. We have it in a fuller way without building the wall because we're on this side of the resurrection, post-resurrection, and the day of Pentecost coming to us. Jesus is the presence of God who took on flesh and dwelt among his people. Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And he was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus, the fullness of deity, dwells bodily. That's why we're not looking to Jerusalem anymore. We look to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why we're not looking to rebuild the walls, but we're looking to rebuild each other by the grace and the power of the gospel. You don't have to build a wall to get what the Israelites so desperately wanted. We just got to come to church. We got to look to his word. And by faith, you could look to Jesus Christ in whom the fullness of deity dwells and the fullness of what the Old Testament temple only had a glimpse and an appetizer of. We have in its fullest expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ for us today and we look at him by faith in his face. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we thank you so much for the grace that we have received in Jesus, the fullness of your bodily, the fullness of your deity given to us in bodily form by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we have your presence, your greatness, your kingship, your love, grace, and mercy, your justice and holiness for our hearts and our lives and our satisfaction. And we thank you so much. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.